Welcome to History Reimagined, where history becomes fiction and fiction becomes history. You are listening to part three of the Dejas series. My brothers and sisters of the stars, welcome. I hope this broadcast finds you well. The device that Maurice had planted inside of Razia has a history of its own. During the Neronian Revolution, the army of peace suffered numerous waves of desertions. And so in AP fashion, millions of soldiers had the Iron Heart device implanted inside of them. The operation barely left a scar, but the soldier who underwent such an ordeal knew that they would never be free again. Some soldiers wore the scar with pride, their lack of fear a symbol of their loyalty. But proud or no, their lives were now in the hands of their superiors. With a single voice command, the device would close off blood flow. It could not be removed. No external aid could prevent death. However, Razia was crawled, and a crawled cannot die so easily. Perhaps death would have been a kinder fate. This is History Reimagined, and you are listening to Dalton Bates. On this podcast, we reimagine history through fiction. Join us as we explore the history of distant futures, of magical pasts, and the stories of those who have been forgotten to history. Sit back and enjoy a history lesson like no other. Was he truly sitting across the table from Razia? Her plain garb wasn't revealing, but if only he could see the scarred skin beneath, he would know for certain. While the crawled could almost instantaneously heal themselves, their wounds would leave grotesque scars. Aware of his gaze, Razia spoke. I am a monster beneath these robes. Sometimes the greatest beasts hide in the plainest of sights. Lerald protested against her image of herself, but Razia silenced him with a stare. Lerald, you want me to fill the shoes of my mother, become the leader that she was. You were not the first person to mistake me for Electa. You will not be the last. But I will always be my father's daughter. Lisa's gait began to slow, and I began to realize where we were. At the heart of the central city of Arbos, there stood the palace of our empress. It rose above the cityscape with brutal intensity. From the outside, there was no beauty or architectural accomplishment to be found. 
It could be described simply as a dome. Without entrances or defining features, it screamed a severe practicality. Inside, Sindel could enjoy her luxuries, knowing that she was safe. She cared not about maintaining a veneer of high nobility and grace, no. Her only concern was projecting an image of power and immovability out into the universe, and her palace dome achieved just that. I drew my eyes away from the palace, but when I looked, Maurice was nowhere to be found. Blurred forms like many rivers streamed past me, and I was just another speck in the great expanse. But I was a part, different from those around me. Everyone had somewhere to go. They all moved with purpose. I found myself watching them, thinking about them and where they were headed, instead of where I had to go and what I had to do. Many appeared to be off-worlders, foreign to Arbos, arriving here with only the clothes on their backs, and not stopping until they reached their destination, the Grand Imperial Palace. I had heard about them before, so-called civil pioneers. When someone had nothing left was bereft of hope, our empire called and offered a new life. They would flock in hundreds of thousands daily to Arbos. Sindel herself would step forth onto her balcony and greet them with open arms. She would evoke words of ancient wisdom that had long ago lost their meaning, and then bid them farewell. That very day, they would be shipped out to rebellious worlds and dispersed among the local populations. They came without politics or agenda, and were a welcome alternative to the sadism of Sindel's golden defenders. However, they were a diluent, in time turning a once-proud people docile. I returned to the world around me, becoming aware of faces old and young, wondering what distant world they would soon call home. My dream of home was soon broken. I didn't need to look around to sense the giant presence behind me, as though its great mass forced the world around it to fall into its gravity. I wanted to disappear into the crowd to escape its gaze, but I, I turned to face it. The Golden Defender stood at two and a half meters, but it was its armor that made it truly awe-inspiring. Most people have seen them, but perhaps not up this close. Seeing a golden defender over a display screen doesn't capture the nightmarish brutality carved in every inch of its metal. It is as though their armor has been clawed at by people sunken into the depths of despair and desperation, and yet the scratches barely break the surface, demonstrating a self-evident futility to resistance. Razia Abori Salvage, came a computer-modulated voice, neither male nor female. Before I could respond, it seemed to read the minutest changes in my facial expression. It indicated for me to follow it. And with that, it marched straight into the crowd. But the crowd was already separating. Out of fear or reverence, I, I couldn't be sure. I stayed close behind, feeling the eyes of the masses as they turned in my direction. I stared back at those poor souls. I could see they knew I was someone special, and such a realization awoke something inside of them. A deeper, more fundamental truth. That they were insignificant in this universe, doomed to be forgotten. In those fleeting moments, I grew to fear them. I feared their frustration would overcome them, and before I could blink, I would be standing in a scene of violence. But at the same time, there was only pity in my heart. They had nothing and the only person who could grant them something was behind an impenetrable metal dome. 
When I looked back, the golden defender had its hand pressed against the dome wall. The outline of a door glowed blue, and then an entrance appeared. The only thing holding the crowd back was a low barrier, but in actuality, there was something else. Golden defenders lined the dome palace. The ranks were thin compared to the swelling crowd, but the terror they instilled was absolute. The ragged travelers only looked with empty eyes into the small opening, where beyond lay an imagined paradise. I stepped over the barrier, and with the defender's consent, I walked on into the dome. vision into the distance. At my feet, intricate patterns woven in gold acted like arrows pointing me forward. I took a step, and then another. I looked up. The walls were lined with digital displays. It was as though I was gazing into worlds that existed independent of my own. Scenes played themselves out around me. As I walked, there were battles. Sindel's golden defenders obliterating crawl hordes. In great assemblies with Sindel addressing thousands of dignitaries. I stopped to watch a scene unlike the others. It was a wedding. Though there was another angle to the event. Amongst those seated there were military men and women in their uniforms and political figures distinguished by their formal attire and sober manner. But that was not what caught my eye. There she was. There could be no doubt. It had to be her. My mother stood there, at the center of the ceremony. Though she was not alone. A man stood beside her, and his hand locked in hers. Out of nowhere, he turned, looking straight into the display, our gazes colliding. I was overwhelmed with a single thought. Father? to find oneself lost in Nero and Alice's wedding. It is, some say, the conception of our empire. No, I would not ask for a more beautiful beginning. A young woman of exquisite appearance stood beside me, garbed in a plain white outfit with golden lining. Our eyes met and she smiled, as though I was exactly where I was meant to be. A guard, dressed in regal costume resembling theater closer than military, stood behind her. He was staring at me as though I was some oddity. Electo Abori, he murmured. The young woman corrected him and said that I was Razia Abori Selvage. He didn't seem to be paying attention to her. Only me. All that mattered to him was me. He was old. Worn down from years of hardship, with a ragged beard and a terrible scar from his left eye across his shaven head. I felt sorry for him. Until he drew his ceremonial blade. He wrapped a pale hand around the young woman's mouth and drove the sword through her back. She collapsed in front of me. I could only watch in horror. 
I stood there as she turned her head up at me with the last of her vigor, and I had to watch the life fade from her eyes. The old guard straightened himself and swiveled in my direction. He apologized to me, showing no remorse for the life he had just taken. He told me that I was in chains and that I needed to be freed. I was about to protest, but then my eyes drifted to the blood as it ran down the face of his blade. He continued, I will take you from this evil place, Electa. They will kill me for this, but let me fulfill this final honor, so I can die a hero and forget these years of cowardice serving Sindel Makuro. I have failed everyone. I will not fail you. He wrapped a wrinkled hand around my wrist and dragged me away. With those words I saw through his eyes, a painful memory, full of sadness, brightened only by a spark of hope. I was that hope. Such a thought planted inside of me a fear far more terrifying than the iron heart within my chest. forgive me, Electa, for no longer fighting for the revolution and serving the woman who crushed it. Hogris Xavier was once a name I bore with pride. Back in the days of my youth, I served in the Green Army, and we were those willing to forsake our own lives to protect the ideals of Viserys' revolution. Many of us were deserters from the old regime. Others were new blood, prepared to sacrifice heart and soul for the cause. It was a time of great hope and fervor. We all believed in the utopic future, and we had the power to make it true. I truly believed no one good or wise opposed us. We had been so certain that nothing bad could befall us. The following year, I had my first child, a son. Only if he was with me now. It is a true tragedy when a son dies before his father. The army of peace took him from me. They preached what they did not practice. They could call themselves whatever they wanted, but it would not change the death, the murder of my son. But haven't we all suffered such great losses? I remember hearing that you lost your daughter during the outbreak on Kima. Perhaps if peace was negotiated between Visayas and the AP all those years ago, none of this suffering would have befallen us. Alas, such a task was impossible, even for you. It has always been so. There are forces in this universe that we cannot hope to understand working against us. You know, I was there the day Viseyri was assassinated. I still bear the shame of failing her and my world. As a supervisor of a guard patrol, I could have done more to ensure that the AP assassin was rooted out. I want to believe that Visay had survived. Well, maybe everything would have been different. Mashaka could still be my home. My son could still be with me. Sindel Makuro would not preside over her tyrannical empire. I want to believe that. But sometimes, 
Sometimes I don't. The petty men who tried to take Viserys' place to fill her shoes sought to blame you for their mismanagement of her legacy. I do not speak alone when I say that I would have refused to execute you if a guilty verdict had been reached. Ah, you must forgive me, for I do not know where I am going with this rambling. Perhaps I just want to say that I no longer have any fight left in me. Perhaps I need you to know that I have fought. That I have tried to be true to Viseri and all those who followed in her footsteps. But there are no longer any leaders to follow. I need... We all need someone to lift the banner of revolution once more. Many years ago, we were all leaders in our own right. In spite of Fresno Colt West's control over the Mon Capital and his puppet government of nobles, we organized protests and boycotted AP Monopoly. It became a world divided. There was only the resistance and the tyranny. Though without a leader, it was inevitable, I suppose, that our peaceful rebellion would become violent. It is disputed who struck first. But I was there, Electa, and my eyes did not deceive me. They opened fire into the crowds. My son, just a boy, bled out in my arms. I had to watch the life fade from his eyes. There was only one path forward after that moment. I would no longer fight with my words. Clashes between protesters and soldiers became more frequent, often ending in bloody landscapes strewn with the bodies of the dead. It was our blood and tears that painted the concrete, and the enemy was walking away with barely a scratch. My wife begged for us to leave the capital, but such a choice was taken from my hands when Beoflin's campaign of violence began. Beoflin Alim, who had once served in the Army of Peace. Beoflin Alim, who had been accused of assassinating Viserys. He now returned to us a different man. After Rhee's death, Beoflin had known he would not be safe in the Mon capital, so he fled. He told me that he had thought about a simple life, where he would shed his name and live as a commoner, unbeknownst to the universe. But it became clear to him that he would watch the AP fall or die trying. And so he put his intellect to work developing weapons of war that could sow chaos into the organization that had built itself upon order. Beoflin's first attack came on a silent night. The day had been long, and the soldiers on duty were weary from beating back a constant stream of protesters, trying to keep us from the industrial areas of the city. There was a well of rumors of exactly what happened that night, but I will relate to you the story Beoflin told me himself. An AP soldier, who had been scheduled to return to his barracks, was injected, unbeknownst to him, with a virus of Beoflin's design. It seeped into his brain, where it began to erode his mind. Once inside the barracks, the infection was complete, and the poor man was no more. Standing in his place was a mindless body, primed to commit violence. As he killed, the virus spread. When the dust settled, a total of twenty soldiers were dead. The information of the incident was suppressed upon Verezno's directive, but as similar attacks repeated themselves across the city, whispers of the truth began to spread. 
Everything was made clear when Beoflin broadcast his message to the world, claiming that the violence would not end until the AP was broken. Forced to retreat to the pages of history. In the coming weeks, the capital was quarantined, and the hunt for Beoflin and his allies commenced. When protest leaders and their closest found themselves prey in the hunt, I knew my family would not be safe. I had organized safe passage for them out of the capital. But I was such a fool, Electa. I should have... I should have done more. I sent them to the graves. I heard the fate of my wife, sister, mother, and father over an official broadcast. They had been apprehended. While the voice on the radio said that they would be released in ten days if they were innocent, when the day came and I stood alone, I couldn't imagine ever holding my head high again. Oh, what a fool. There was nothing I could do now but dwell on the horrors that would have suffered an AP prison complex for their inescapable execution. In the two hours that followed that revelation, I had given up, for I believed that there was nothing left to fight for. I wandered without direction, and yet somehow I found Beoflin. I had seen his likeness on screen posters, but in person, the true magnitude of his malevolence was palpable. Each word he spoke, every movement, no matter how small, seemed to be motivated by malice. I remember the moment when he looked into my eyes and said, Harkris Xavier, I have something that only you can do, and you alone will do it for the sake of those you have loved and lost. I accepted. I needed to know more. This final task, imbued with such purpose, would be my farewell to this universe. I was instructed to find my way to a safe house, where you, Electa, planned to meet with several protest leaders to discuss a safe exile from the Mong capital to avoid Fresno's prisons. From there, I would inject the virus into one of your guards. I didn't ask why he wished to sow such needless chaos amongst the ranks of the protesters. I guess I already knew. Beauflin's words conveyed a hatred for the AP's peace that could not be satiated, and he would tear apart that peace with death and destruction, no matter the cost. When I arrived, friends expressed their condolences, but all that mattered to me was you. You stood there addressing an eager audience. From a distance, I just watched you. I could not hear what you were saying. But I only needed to see the people around you to feel my heart beating with a newfound hope. I forgot about Beoflin's instructions. As you moved to leave, you noticed me among the crowd, and it was as though your words were spoken for me alone. I can see that all you have lost is beyond measure. I can see your pain. I can feel it. But you must never forget that there are others out there who can still be saved from their suffering. Think about their futures, and only then will you be able to overcome the pain of your pasts. I wouldn't have executed Beothlin's plan, even if I had wanted to, for his words were the furthest thing from my mind. From that moment on, I knew that I had to follow your example. Do as you did, even if my contribution to the cause but a drop in a vast ocean. In spite of all the disgust and hatred inside of me, I applied to the AP introductory program 
believing that I could do good from within. My first appointment as an AP soldier was at the Jong outpost, far from the capital, in the lands that I'd always known. It was there, guarding a government facility, that I first laid eyes upon Nero Makuro. He was but a boy at that time, timid and surveilled. But the revolution would change him. He would come to embody it. He would become so much more than a mortal man. Day after day, I watched Nero march into the facility where I would overhear his requests to AP officials. The boy would always leave with a task to complete. Some meager errand to run, at which point he was promised that his requests would be processed. Even though nothing changed, he continued, day after day. He began to return with his family, and his friends, and their families. In the beginning, his requests were simple, such as more funding for his local school, or greater distribution of food resources in his area. But they were quickly expanding. Before I knew it, Nero became the unofficial representative of his local community, and the community over until he was organizing meetings for the whole region. He began taking their demands to the AP directly, or using the resources they had for their own means instead of delivering them to the army for distribution. When the demands weren't met, Nero organized the withholding of taxes and material goods until he finally had the higher-ups' attention. I requested to be one of Nero's guard escorts when he was invited to the capital. During the trip, Nero never relaxed always working on his negotiation tactics or in contact with someone about demonstrations and demands. When we stepped out of the transport onto the streets of Mong, I could not believe my eyes to behold a vast crowd of excited young activists right beside disenfranchised workers. I could understand their excitement because I felt it too. Nero wasn't afraid. He would never back down against the mighty army of peace. Whatever it took, he wasn't someone to compromise his principles. He was exactly who we needed. And we all projected the memory of Asayri onto him. The negotiations for more autonomy ended without a resolution. But Nero remained in the Mon capital, and I stayed by his side. He wouldn't have been able to recall my name. But in his presence, I felt truly alive. He reignited the protests, but this time other regions were also rising up thinning out Fresno's forces. Beoflin's attacks intensified, becoming more frequent and more deadly. AP soldiers no longer gathered in large numbers for fear of mass casualties. This allowed the protesters to gain ground as they occupied large swaths of the city. It was announced that Nero would be appointed as an honorary governor in Zhang to remove him from the capital and stop him from influencing affairs there. Nero never had the option to decide because after the announcement, attacks from Beoflin ceased. It was only days later that Fresno publicly argued for the existence of an alliance between Nero and Beoflin, and with his established falsehood, he ordered a ruthless crackdown on Nero and all of his supporters. Crowded streets were bombed with lethal airborne poisons, leaving in their wake thousands of lifeless bodies. AP soldiers safe behind their gas masks marched into scenes of horror, transforming a massacre into an image of hell as they incinerated the dead and the dying without mercy. Upon hearing word of such barbarism, I tore myself free from my uniform and I followed Nero as he escaped the capital. What happened next I only witnessed from afar, but one thing above all else was absolutely clear to me, Electa. 
and that was your bravery. No one dared stand in the way of Fresno Colt West as he exposed his latent hatred for our home world and all of our people. No one except you. You step forward into the public eye, putting your life on the line to censor Fresno's violent inhumanity. As a man of pride, Fresno no doubt saw you as a rival, someone who was intentionally undermining his authority. When he gave the order for your arrest, it didn't shock me. But the heroism of your late husband was... stopped Harkris and demanded, Did you know my father? Harkris was bemused by my question. Afraid of breaking his delusion, I played along with it. Please tell me what you know about my husband. What I know about Vulcan Selvage? murmured Harkris. A distant memory began to resurface on the edge of my consciousness, but in the end there was only silence. Or do you mean Vulcan the Defiler of Man? Suddenly a world burst aflame in my mind's eye as a million screaming souls deafened all else around me. And then I saw him, standing atop a mountain of rotting flesh, clad in his gleaming red armor. And I heard myself calling out to him, Father. Before the outbreak, Vulcan had been a good man. Even though he had been born into a life of privilege and wealth, he never ventured far from his home world, caring deeply for all her people. During the AP occupation, he rose to the ranks of the new AP administration to become an up-and-coming politician. But he never stepped out of line, always obeying his superiors. Until he risked everything. His political status his wealth, his nobility, even his own life, to save you from Fresno's grasp. I think that alone says all you need to know. When Vulcan became crawled, it is said that crawled do not lose their minds to the virus, that their brains are effectively the same as when they were human. But I don't believe it. Vulcan Selvage had been a patron of humanity, Vulcan the Defiler wanted to destroy it. He became a murderer on a galactic scale. That monster shouldn't have kept the name Vulcan, for he was a different man. Not just a different man. He was Vulcan Selvage's antithesis. The true Vulcan's heroism triggered the beginning of the end for Fresno's occupation. Fresno's ensuing threats against Vulcan were no doubt the main reason that other nobles started to distance themselves from the AP fearing for the impunity with which they themselves could be targeted. With dindling support from the nobility and local uprisings across the entire planet, AP soldiers could no longer keep control. When his struggle seemed truly hopeless, Fresno accepted his loss and retreated to space, now with less than half the soldiers of his original force, many having deserted him, disillusioned by what the army of peace had become. 
Nero returned to the capital, welcomed by massive celebrations. I remember watching you re-emerge onto the public stage, with Vulcan by your side. I was there, among it all. And I must admit that it reminded me of Viserys' revolution. It didn't matter that there were challenges ahead, because we had no doubt that now nothing could stand in our way. As the hours of merrymaking continued on into the night, I slipped away from the parties and festivals. I wasn't needed anymore. There was peace on the streets, and nothing a soldier like me could do. I visited a mass cemetery outside the city and found the resting places of my family. Looking over those whom I had lost, I was consumed by my sadness. As though in that moment, I was the only one left in the universe. I almost took my own life that night. However, I remember looking back at the luminous city and thinking that our efforts had truly brought about our freedom. I remember smiling, but I can no longer bring myself to smile. Everything we fought for has been lost. How? Oh, how, Electa, can I lift my tired bones to fight when all those years of fighting and resisting have resulted in... What? Nothing but death and a cursed empire. I was in the capital for the day of weddings. Not for the political pretend that was the wedding of Nero Makuro and Alicia Selvage. I was there to behold a matrimony of love between Electa Abori and Vulcan Selvage. No one was indoors when you both joined hands and said the sacred words. Everyone wanted to be a part of that moment. We all felt like we belonged to something bigger, greater. It is impossible to put into words, but I wish that before my dying days, oh Electa, I wish I could feel something like how I felt then. But I know I won't. The revolution is dead and those that feasted upon its carcass are now kings and queens. It always was but a dream. Shot sounded, and Harkris collapsed beside me, still gripping my wrist. His clasp slowly loosened, and I watched as the life faded from his eyes. He had lived a sad life, and now he died a sad death. Alone, trapped in a delusion, devoid of hope. I couldn't even bring myself to cradle his dying body. You have been listening to the History Reimagined Podcast. Dejas will be back in two weeks' time with part four. It takes a lot of time and energy to produce each episode. Levi and I do our best to make something that you can enjoy. As a way to say thank you, you can share and review this podcast. Consider introducing your friends and family to the fictional history genre. If you would like to support the podcast financially, we are selling t-shirts with art exclusively for the Deja series. 
They can be found at Spreadshirt.com slash user slash History Reimagined or by searching Dejas on the Spreadshirt website. We also have a Twitter account at ReimaginedPod. Over there, we will post updates and more. You can contact us with questions and feedback. We will respond. That's a promise. History Reimagined is narrated by Dalton Bates and written by Levi Hirsch. The intro song is On and On by Charlotte O.C. Our theme music is Naive by Sergei Kermizinov. Until next time, my fair listener. On and on and on. Time is wasted. Wasted.